We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. What's happening, everybody? It is Eric Rosenday here on the Perpetual Chess Podcast. International Master Eric Rosen, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm huge fan of the podcast, so looking forward to it. Thanks. Yeah, I know that you at minimum turned your dad onto the podcast, so I, I appreciate that. Any uh, if anyone's wondering why Eric's so strong, I think it's because um you've been spreading the word about the podcast. Every every new listener you bring in, I think uh, gains one's rating by about fifty points. I've heard. People yeah, that's are saying. possible. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm huge. Like I'm myself and my dad are uh, are huge podcast addicts, and we uh, we we consume a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, shows. But this is definitely one of my favorites. So, Excellent. Well, uh, okay. I mean, obviously, fun. we're going to get to chess in a minute. But tell me a couple other ones. What else are you you guys into? Um, well, for me, I'm a huge fan of uh, of Reply All um, by Gimlet Media. Um, I'm very into like web development and tech stuff and they do a good job of, um, of presenting a lot of like interesting stories related to the, the internet. Um, but also like the classics like, um, Ted, this American life. Um, I'm sure there's, there's tons of others that I'm forgetting right now, but, um, nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like a lot of the, the more popular ones too. I've actually never checked out reply all, but some of Gimlet media's other ones, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of. Um, oh, another one too, uh, Tim Ferriss. I actually wanted to ask you if you listen to that because it, I think, relates very much to what you're doing with these uh, these sort of long form interviews. I I do, yeah. I've I pick and choose based on the guest, and I, mm-hmm. I you know, uh, Tim Ferriss doesn't like he doesn't need my support, but sure. um, so I have a couple quibbles with his format. I have to say, but um, but his guests are amazing. Um, so sure. I, I basically pick and choose, but I'm overall, I, you know, have an incredible amount of respect for uh, 
the career he's built and all the like insane physical tasks he does and, and stuff oh, of like course. that. Um, there was actually a, a, an episode not too long ago. He did one on like his process of interviewing. So if you haven't listened to that one, I found it really, really interesting. Okay. Um, I thought you could probably benefit from it too. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, it's intended to be like a good resource. I mean, I'm, uh, not intended to be an insult. For no, sure. I know. I'm just kidding. I, uh, I, I've listened to a lot of, uh, like the meta podcast, the podcast about podcasts, sure. the podcast about interviewing and stuff. So I'm, uh-huh. I'm definitely, uh, definitely have things to learn. Um, so the other thing I wanted to start out with, Eric, of course, is you just came from the Sinkfield Cup. So we're going to get into sort of the, the broad sweep of your uh, young chess career and your life. But I want to get the boots on the ground report since you just you got back from there. And as we record, you're going to be heading back there shortly. Yeah, of course. Um, well, just to set the record straight, I didn't play in the Sinkfield Cup. I, just, uh, <laughs> right. I was working as um, as sort of a, a Twitter person for for us chess um so yeah it was actually really enjoyable um i uh spent a couple days over the weekend taking over the us chess twitter feed and um essentially tweeting nonstop during the during the rounds and i will say it's a lot less stressful than actually playing chess um tweeting about it it's um it's a lot more fun (laughs) yeah uh yeah i i mean Probably uh, lower highs, but uh, higher lows as well on an on an emotional level. I mean, you know, it's probably not the peak moments aren't as fun as actually playing chess, but yeah, more relaxing for sure. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I had to uh, basically work until the the last game of the round, but um, it was really enjoyable, kind of combining um, like the the chess aspects, but also like photographing the players and. Uh, taking a, a creative take of, uh, of, of various moments. So, um, yeah, definitely something I'm, I'm looking forward to doing again. Yeah. And for it, for that tournament, having such a sort of, um, large scale in the chess world, I mean, people pay so much attention to it, but I get the impression sure. that it's kind of like, it's not that many people there. If you go there, is that, I mean, like between the spectators and the players and the entourages and the, the working crew, like, how many people would you say like encompass the Sinkfeld like social circle when you're there? Um, well, I would say on the weekends it's a lot more crowded, and like especially like during the start and maybe finish of each round, like, usually the playing hall is just packed with spectators, um, and it's not the the biggest space compared to maybe some of other uh, elite tournaments. Um, but I would say, I mean, they attract like throughout the day they attract at least like two, three, four hundred people. So, um, I mean, it's, it's a nice setup that they have because, um, as a spectator, you can, uh, you can watch live in the, the playing hall. You can watch the, uh, the live commentary kind of in the club area. Um, you can also watch, um, the, the, uh, the extra live commentary at Kingside Diner where they have, I think it was, um, Eric Hansen and Verruja Nakobian, um, doing it for the live audience. So there's a lot of places you can kind of go around and, um, it's actually not easy to get bored during like the, <laughs> the five or six hour round. That's, I mean, that's a big compliment for a live chess event for a classical chess event. For sure. Yeah. And it's, um, it's like that, uh, like a lot of the events they run, like, um, I was, uh, I had the pleasure of attending during us championships too. 
and is essentially the same format. Um, I mean, not only do they do a great job for the, the players, but for the spectators, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. Nice. And when you head back there in a couple of days, um, are you going to have the same, uh, are you going to be tweeting again? Uh, yeah. So the plan is I will take over the U.S. Chess Twitter feed during the first round of the St. Louis Blitz and Rapid and then the last round. Um, I'm really looking forward to it because, uh, of course, uh, the Kasparov return should be uh, epic to say the least. Yeah, I'm, and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure before uh, or by the time this podcast is released, the event will already have happened. So Yeah, well, this one's um, got a quicker turnaround than most. So oh, yeah? barring technical difficulties, this is Friday night. This will come out Tuesday. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. When, when is, you uh, don't kick over the, the microphone. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when, uh, when does, um, when does it start? Uh, um, assuming I remember my calendar, I think Monday. So, okay. Um, I'll have just tweeted about the, the first round. Nice. Yeah. So what do you think about, uh, Kasparov's chances in the event? Um, I really don't know what to expect. Um, I actually, attended during the match he had against Nigel Schwartz. Um, I think this was back in 2015. And it was just an exhibition match, but he completely like, rolled over Schwartz. It was a completely lopsided match. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he, um, if he does well in the event. I mean, I, I don't think he would take first place just given his age. But, um, I mean... I'm, I'm sure he's capable of finishing um, above 50%. Wow, that would be incredible. I mean, I agree, but still, it's like until he does it, you know, <laughs> you, you kind of have to see it to believe it. But I mean, sure. n- no reason he can't do it. Um, so what were your impressions of the chess in, in the Sinkfeld Cup so far? I mean, actually, we can talk about it. You know, we can post-mortem the classical, uh, being that it just ended. Oh, the chess itself. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the uh, tournament just wrapped up today, and um, I wasn't able to follow the games too closely, like the final rounds. I've been <laughs> busy teaching a lot, but um, the uh, I mean, the chess itself it seemed to be a lot more bloody compared to other events, like a, a ton of decisive games, and um, it really was up in the air coming down to the last round. Um, and as a spectator, that's what you want to see. Yeah. A lot of wins with black, relatively speaking. Right. Yeah. And like a lot of blunders. Um, I think that was one of the things or one of the reasons why Kasparov wants to come back, just realizing like all the blunders at this like top level play. He wants to uh, come back and prove himself that he can uh, maybe be a bit more solid than these, uh, than these top players. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope he's right. And I know he said, you know, I, I'm sure you probably saw that he basically tried to quash any talk of this being like the start of a bigger comeback. Um, but you know, hope springs eternal. So I guess we have for to sure. we have to root for him to do his best, and then hope that that like he can't resist after that. Yeah, let's hope so. That would be really cool. <laughs> cool. Well, so before the Sinkfeld Cup, Eric, I've you know I've had you on my list as a guest for a while now, and then I know that you took this epic trip in Europe, like playing chess tournaments all over the place, um, presumably having some fun in between. So, could could you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, this um, summer chess vacation you just got back from? 
Sure. Yeah, I got back um, beginning of August, like August 1st, and it was um, about a two month trip. And going into it, it was kind of spontaneous. I booked a ticket uh, back in April and I didn't really have the whole thing planned out. Um, I should note for the people who don't know, I graduated from Webster University in May. And um, like a month before graduation, I didn't really have any like post-graduation plans. And um, I had some friends playing various tournaments in Europe, and I thought it would be a good chance to uh, kind of combine chess and travel and um, and continue working and teaching online. So yeah, looking back on it, it was a it was a really great experience. Um, I mean, there are so many different aspects of the trip between the chess and um, and just uh, like other non chess related experiences. But um, overall, I visited, I think, like eight or nine different countries. And um, I mean, it was like nonstop traveling and towards the end, it was pretty tiring. But overall, it was a it was a blast. Nice. Well, I think I know what the chess highlight was. <laughs> what you it, tell me. <laughs> I mean, beating uh, Simon Agatstein uh, again. I feel I feel terrible that I may or may not be butchering his name, but obviously, uh, <laughs> you know, his his reputation speaks for itself. Um, that's uh, that's quite uh, an achievement, and the game was pretty cool. And that was, you know, you had a, a good tournament. Besides that, um, in that tournament, I never heard of Excelsior. Uh, was that in Norway? Where were you for that one? It was in um, Denmark, okay. um, just outside Copenhagen. Nice, great city. Um, and yeah, Copenhagen was really nice. Got to spend like one day there. Um, the The city that the tournament was in was kind of desolate. Um, not too much uh, going on there. But yeah, it was a really nice, well-run event. And um, yeah, I had the opportunity to... Uh, to, to play Agustin, which which in itself was a highlight, and then beating him, of course, was uh, was one of the biggest highlights of the trip. Um, I will say the game, like on his part, maybe wasn't entirely impressive. Like he uh, he kind of disobeyed a lot of like early opening principles, and then like just didn't develop quickly enough, didn't castle early enough, and then just ran into trouble very quickly. So yeah, well, you still have to win the game, though. <laughs> I mean, that is true. Yeah. I mean, it's and, like, um, it's one thing to get an advantage against guys like that, but to actually, you know, to bring it home is never that easy. Um, sure, sure. So did he, uh, did, did you get a chance to talk to him about it at all, about the game? No, unfortunately, like, we didn't really talk after the game. I could tell that he uh, is kind of not in the best mood. Yeah. Um. And sometimes after like defeating much higher rated player, I'll I'll let them initiate the conversation. Yeah, likewise. Um, I I I think that's sportsmanlike. I think it's the right thing to do. I was curious, mainly not so much from. Uh, um, I was mainly curious if he like isolated, like you know, if he gave his perspective of of what went wrong. But but uh, yeah, it's understandable that you know you don't get to be twenty six hundred without getting upset when you when you have a bad loss. Sure. I mean, I've, I've like looked him up before the round and like he's is, he seems like a really down to earth guy. Like I found some YouTube videos of like him teaching uh, like some camp and giving a simul. Um, and then after the game, I found some YouTube video of him. It was like him in a music video and it was some kind of song about Magnus Carlson. 
And I was so thankful that I didn't like <laughs> find out about this video before the game because the song would have just been stuck in my head. That, um, <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, I did see uh, in your U.S. Chess article, you, to your credit, you did say don't watch like TV and videos before the round. So I, I guess that, that's true. Yeah, I kind of uh, I kind of forgot about that at various <laughs> moments of uh, of my tournaments. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll usually make an effort to like look up my opponents on online, like in all various aspects, like their games, YouTube videos, any articles I can find. Um, but yeah, he's like Agustin is a really interesting guy because he um, not only was Magnus Carlsen's former coach, but he also played like professional soccer for Norway, and he was in I think Chess the Musical. Oh, I, uh, wow! Seems all around multi talented. I knew about the soccer. I did not know about Chess the Musical. Uh huh. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I, I would recommend checking out his Wikipedia page because there's some interesting uh, facts about him. Nice. And you had some. Uh, so was that tournament your best result overall? In your trip? Um, well, it started off really well. Uh, like after six rounds, I was tied for first with five and a half out of right, six. Right, yeah. Bava and a few other like strong GNs. And then it completely fell apart. Like after I beat Agustin, I think I lost my last three out of four games. So it was somewhat of a disappointing finish. And I actually had to play one of the players who I was rooming with during the event. And we both knew each other so well, and he got the better of me in the opening. So it didn't, uh, th- things didn't really end that well. But um, I think overall, like out of all the tournaments, it was still my my best event. Okay. And what's, you probably still have some game analysis to do, but what's your general feeling about like how you, how you played and on the whole trip versus your goals going in? Sure. Well, I will say that I, I didn't have too many like, specific chess improvement goals going in um like even though i'm an im and like attaining the grandmaster title is the obvious next step like it's the obvious goal i can tell a lot of people my main goal for the trip was to kind of leverage chess as like a vehicle for travel and like getting to see new places meet new people so actually going into the trip i wasn't taking the chess like super seriously i still wanted to do well um and overall, I, I feel like I played well. I think there were moments where um, I maybe got, I don't know, a little bit overambitious or maybe didn't quite make the right choices in hindsight. Um, and especially towards the end of the trip, I was just, uh, I was pretty exhausted between, um, between playing four tournaments and like constant traveling. Um, it really takes a toll on, uh, on, on my energy levels. And looking back on it, um, if I had to do it over again, maybe I wouldn't play so many tournaments back to back. But um, I mean, overall, I, I don't have too many regrets. Yeah, and and the schlepping can be exhausting too. Like it's sort of underrated aspect of these trips is like you get somewhere and like you're supposed to be doing things, but you want to recover from getting there. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, I, I did have breaks like between tournaments, um, but the, the the tournaments that I played in, they were kind of uh, spread out across Europe, um, starting in, uh, I, I started in Latvia. I went to, uh, Czech Republic, went to Romania, went to Spain, went to Denmark. So everything required, uh, air travel. And, um, I mean, it was tiring, but it was filled with like so many cool and interesting experiences that, um, I mean, it was well worth it. Nice. Do you have like one, um, could you isolate one standout sort of away from the chessboard experience that, 
that you would want to share? Um, yeah, there were a lot of like just kind of cool travel moments. Um, I'm trying to think of one. There, there were so many. Like every place I went to was different. Um, I will say that I, I really enjoyed kind of the, the scenery in um, in Benasque, Spain. Um, there's a tournament there, the Benasque Open, which is in a very small town in Spain about, I think it's like a three, four hour drive from, from Barcelona. And the population of the town is about 2,000 people. And over 500 people attended the tournament. Wow. So the 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 10 days that the tournament lasted the the town's population increased about 25% um but the town itself was was a really cool place for for a chess tournament and um i would spend uh I kind of spend the off time like before rounds just kind of walking um walking like through the mountains like away from the town and um they had like these nice trails which is kind of surrounded by nature and um I actually use that time to catch up on like the the episodes of Perpetual Chess podcast. Ah, nice. So it was um, it, it was one of the the more um, relaxing experiences of my trip, I would say. Excellent, um, cool. So let's uh, let's rewind to before that. So you've you've sure. um, you just graduated from Webster, and I know you were at U of Illinois uh, before that. I want to talk about both of those, but let's uh, sure. Let's go backward on this one. We often take it from childhood and then like move forward. But let's this time, let's uh, let's go back and talk about what was most recent first. So, what was your experience like? Uh, you know, studying with with Susan Polgar and all those chess monsters over there in St. Louis. Yeah, it was really cool, um, and it was different for me because, like, from my previous experience, previous experiences in uh, at University of Illinois and in high school. I was kind of used to being the top player in the room, but when I went to Webster, I mean, I was one of the weaker players on the team. Um, and being surrounded by like so many strong and elite players, I mean, it was a phenomenal experience. And um, so, it's I mean, the, Ray Robson, who else? Um, yeah, so up? Ray Robson, um, Laquang Liem, who was our top oh, player, right. I think, yeah, <laughs> top thirty in the world. And then um, a lot of other strong grandmasters, Alexander Shimonov, Ilya Nizhnik. Right. He's um, been doing great in the U.S. circuit. Yeah. And it, it's a very diverse team. Like a lot of uh, or most of the players are like all from um, from different countries. So I think there's some some statistic, like at least maybe nine or ten different languages spoken between team members. Um so it's it's a diverse crowd, and um, you kind of learn a lot from from hanging out around uh, these uh, these very strong players. Right, you learn a lot about chess, and I guess about the world, since so many different cultures are represented. For sure. Uh, so, what do you notice chess wise, like when you know you play blitz with guys like that? Um, well, I will say that I, I've played a, like a fair number of blitz games against uh, the Quang Liam, like just in training. I, I've never even managed to draw him. Wow, let alone win. Um, like he's he's beaten me twice in classical chess, and like any training game that we've played, he always wins, and he's just so consistent. And it's so hard to find like weaknesses in his play, and he manages his time so well. Um, so I, I've definitely learned a lot from just his style of play. Um, and I should note that like he he won the I think it was a World Blitz Championship back in I want to say 2013. Okay. Um, 
so to be able to kind of train with a player like that and, and see how they approach the game is um, is a great way to learn. So um, what what did you notice about how he approaches the game and his his overall style of play? Um, he's just so consistent. Like it, it's very hard to find a moment where he makes like a clear blunder. And like when I would play him, like we would get like reasonable positions, but just as the game progresses, he would slowly build up some uh, some advantage, and it, it kind of felt like how I would imagine playing Karpov would be, mm-hmm. where like he doesn't let you get anything, like stops all your plans, and um, I mean has a, a very good sense of, of positional chess. Wow! Um, and how how old is he? Do you know? Um, I should know, um, but I'm drawing a blank. I think he's like slightly older than me, maybe 25, 26. Okay. Um, I actually, I, I helped develop his like personal website. So nice. Yeah. I, I wanted, I wanted to talk about your, your web wizardry. So you're a photographer sure. and you're, you do, do you design apps too? I know you did, you did Ben Feingold's site, right? Yeah. So I've, I've mainly focused in like web development, web design, um, I should note that it was actually kind of part of my major at uh, at Webster. The The name of the major was called Interactive Digital Media, but it encompassed kind of a wide array of like digital technologies ranging from web development, design, photography. So I think it, it suited my interests very well. And it's it's been able to uh, kind of mesh well with uh, with chess. So nice. And um We'll get back to Webster and U of Illinois, but uh, so going forward, uh, what you mentioned, you didn't have any plans after you graduated. Do do you like? Do you think you're gonna stick? I know you teach chess. Do you think you're gonna stick with teaching chess, or you're gonna try to get like a web design job, or have you thought through that yet? Yeah, that's a really good question, and um, I will say that like the easy answer right now is I don't know, um, and I'm trying to still kind of self-explore and, and kind of identify all the possible opportunities before I, I commit to any one thing. Um, I will say that like that because my trip is finished and I'll, I'll have some more free time, I'm, I'm going to be like starting job hunting very soon. And um, I mean, I, I am teaching chess um, like decent part time and um, I'm doing a lot of like kind of freelance web development projects too. So Right now, I'm I'm kind of making enough to support myself and support my travels, but it is a question if I want to actually commit to uh, to maybe a more traditional job or kind of continue what uh, what I've been doing and then expanding on that. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm still in kind of the the figuring it out stage. I mean, as you should be, you know, <laughs> you're you're 24, right? Uh, turning 24 next month. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, and it's good that you have two marketable skills. I mean, you know, you don't ever have to make a permanent decision. Just, you know, do what you feel like, basically. You can do either one or both at any time. So, Yeah, that's true. And I'm, I'm very grateful to be in a situation where I have uh, a lot of attractive options. So I think it's just a matter of patience and then I'm choosing the right uh, opportunities as they come up. Nice. So do you think there might be, like, a move in your future? Like new city um very possibly um actually like a few months before uh before graduation i got really like into researching the so-called digital nomad lifestyle 
you where you basically like aren't tied to one location, but you're like constantly traveling and working just with an internet connection and um, kind of supporting yourself. Um, but having like done the trip and, and realizing how exhausting travel can be sometimes, um, I, I definitely have a list of like cities I might want to consider my home base. Um, of course, St. Louis and Chicago being, uh, being the main two, but, um, I also have a lot of friends in, in San Francisco, so I might be, uh, looking for jobs there at some point. Nice. Yeah. And in terms of the digital nomad thing, I think one, like one thing is like, you can stay places for months, you know, like, of course, I feel like yeah. some people feel like they just have to be on the go if they're going to live that life. But like, you know, you there's, you know, I mean, if you think about a place like Chicago, obviously, there's still plenty of things you've never seen, even having grown up there, you know, in the area. And every city is like that. So it's not like you have to be go, 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 you know, just, you can just check out different places and move on when you get tired of them. Um, exactly. Yeah. And th there are programs which like you can apply to and you kind of travel with uh, a group of, of these kind of similar digital nomads. So then you're part of a, a broader community. Um, so that's, uh, that's also an option to look into, but, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that, uh, I, I wouldn't mind exploring further. Nice. All right. And, uh, you of Illinois, so you guys, um, had a crazy Cinderella run, <laughs> uh, in chess. So first of all, how'd you decide to go there? And then let could you give your listener, our listeners sort of the, um, the short version of, uh, what happened with, with the chess team there? Yeah, of course. So, um, I mean, going out of high school, like graduating and then choosing what college I wanted to go to, um, at that point, like I, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And I mean, U of I was such a big school with so many opportunities and I had a lot of friends there. So um, it was a, a logical choice for me to uh, to go to school. And um, and yeah, we had a we had a decent chess team. Um, now, the fact that it was such a big school, we didn't really get that much support for our team um and it was made up a lot of a lot of uh players who kind of grew up in illinois kind of playing the the scholastic chess scene so being on the team there i had like a lot of longtime friends who i knew from childhood um i don't know if you know these names but like michael Odger, akash maduri um and we we managed to form like a, a pretty competitive team for pan ams um, and we also had, um, I mean, University of Illinois has like a big population of international students. And we were lucky enough to get uh, one student from China. His name is um, Jin Lu, goes by Leo. And he joined the team um, having played chess like back when he was maybe like 11 or 12. And he like competed in these, these world youth tournaments. Um, and he was our, um, I think like maybe our board three or board four. And he was really the anchor of our team. And then going into Pan Ams, um, I mean, we had me and then um, I think Michael Odger, Akash Maduri, and Leo. And we managed to actually tie for first with like all these elite schools that offered scholarships and had like full-time coaches. And we had um, nothing comparable to that. So it was, uh, it was a pretty remarkable experience. And, and looking back on it, I'm, I'm still kind of mind boggled of, of how we actually managed to, to do so well 
um, not only our first Pan Ams, but our second Pan Ams, we also qualified for Final Four. So yeah. brings back good memories. Okay, yeah. So I have to grow you on some details for this because uh, good, good friend of mine, Dan Hart, coaches at uh, New Trier. Again, not going to be good oh, with sure. the names. But um, <laughs> so he turned me on to Chess State. So I watched the movie um, like, you oh, know, cool. okay. as a chess teacher kind of wanted to watch it anyway but like figured when you were coming on this is as good a time as any um but so you know the storytelling obviously is good oh and for listeners uh i think it's on youtube and it's on vimeo so you can check it out but basically it's about sort of the scholastic chess scene in chicago which i want to get into a little bit more but so i really enjoyed the storytelling but like as a chess player like it's kind of shrouded in mystery because you don't know the ratings of any of the players and i was watching it on the ipad so it was would have been kind of a pain to look up the rating so i knew that it was an upset and like i knew that like the the kid from china was like had been an amazing talent but i had sort of no uh awareness of the scale of like what the upset was um so what was it (laughs) Well, are you referring to the the college? Yeah, um, let's start with the, with the college. Or? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So the actually, I, I haven't watched the okay. The movie I mean, in but yeah, it's time, not that relevant. But, I mean, I'm basically just asking, like, what was the rating difference? Like, you were probably playing GMs, right? In in the um, the Pan Ams. So the first Pan Ams, yeah, it was in Princeton, and we. Um, we drew one of the earlier rounds and then we managed to get like relatively good pairings until I want to say round five when we played uh, Brownsville, uh, Texas. And that, that was our big upset of the event. They had um, two grandmasters, Mauricio Flores and Axel Bachman. And then they had, um, I want to say Max Cornejo on board three and Katerina Nemsova on board four who um, ended up eventually being my, uh, my teammate at Webster. Um, but yeah, that match was, um, it was a pretty substantial upset because we won two and a half to one and a half. Um, I managed to draw Mauricio Flores. Um, our board three, Akash Maduri, he defeated Max Cornejo in a beautiful game in the, the Smith-Mora Gambit. Hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, listeners can probably find that game online somewhere. And then board four, uh, Leo, he beat Katarina um, in, in a nice game. Um, okay. Actually, I, I remember Katarina telling me maybe it, it wasn't such a nice game, but, uh, but we, we did manage to, <laughs> to come through in the end. So Leo, um, Leo in particular, I find his story interesting. So Katarina is sure. like 2,300 fide, right? Yep. And so this guy, like he didn't play chess and for – eight years or something six years <laughs> how many years was it in between before he like came back to chess and started you know beating players like that i'm i'm actually not entirely sure i think it was at least five or six and um i mean he was at least like 2000 2100 when he was maybe 11 or 12 years old but yeah he took a, a big break um i think primarily focusing on academics and even when he reached university of illinois i mean he was still like incredibly busy student, and I don't know how much time he had for chess because um, he he was like maxing out his credit hours. I remember one semester he was taking maybe like twenty one credit hours and double majoring in something like computer science and economics. Um, but he was very very hardworking, and um, he uh, I think 
he was maybe a bit underrated for his first two tournaments, and that that helped us out because he was a he was able to play board four for our team. Um, and with a, a player like that, I don't think he lost a single game between the first Pan Ams and the second Pan Ams. And he won all six games at the first Pan Ams. And then um, I think he held maybe a few draws at the second Pan Ams that he played in. So definitely a talented player. And I don't think he plays actively anymore, but uh, it was certainly good having him on our team when he did play. Sounds like he's too well-rounded. The, mm-hmm. the downfall of many a chess player. Sure. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's amazing that you've had these like sort of parallel experiences of uh, like Cinderella stories. I mean, I guess in in high school it wasn't uh, wasn't as much of a Cinderella story since, like you said, you were the first board, and I'm sure your your team was pretty strong. But for for the listeners uh, who don't know, could you tell them a little bit about sort of the Chicago State uh, Scholastic setup, particularly the the high school tournament? Sure. Um, I think you're referring to the Illinois High School Team State, which is not actually held in Chicago. Sorry. Yeah, um, that is held in on both. Yeah, it's held in Peoria, Illinois, and it's been held there for for many, many years. And it's one of the biggest uh, team tournaments in the world. And it's primarily made up of um, like high school players that don't even have a, a U.S. chess membership. They mainly just compete for their high school teams. Um, and it's pretty unique because it's an eight board tournament. And I think there's like every year there's about 130 teams that compete. So there's uh, there's tremendous turnout, at least like 14, 1500 players. And um, it's a pretty awesome atmosphere to be be uh, a part of. Yeah. So I mean, it just seems like such a shocking number. <laughs> like it's so many kids playing chess i mean i know chicago is a bit a big city but so mm-hmm. do a lot of these kids uh like is your impression that a lot of them just take it up in high school or uh are a lot of them like playing throughout their childhood and uh then continuing at high school well i, I should note that this tournament it's not just chicago it's the whole state of illinois sorry that and i keep saying that this is <laughs> yeah no, no problem, i mean yeah. illinois <laughs> I mean, Illinois is mostly known for Chicago. But right. There, but, there are other but parts. But I'm aware of that it's, yeah, that it's a state. <laughs> anyway, go on. Um, yeah, so, like, Illinois uh, high schools, are um, they kind of feed into, um, I don't know if feed in is the right term, but um, there's what's called the Illinois high school, oh my gosh, I'm blanking here. I think it's just the Illinois High School Association that coordinates like tournaments for major sports, Um, like any major sport that you can think of, including chess and maybe some of these more obscure things like debates. And um, because so many high schools um, are familiar with uh, this IHSA, then they're able to first of all, find out about like the, the state chess tournament and then field a team. And unlike some of the other state competitions in Illinois, like tennis, where you actually have to qualify for state, uh, with this tournament, any school that can field enough players can can be part of the state tournament. So I think um, for a lot of schools, it, it offers prestige for them that they can participate in a, a state championship event. Nice. And... Um... I mean, I don't 
I don't want to go too far into like the the history, but so how do you think it came to be that like all these schools have chess programs? Like it's just is it like is something in the water in Chicago or it's just sort of like interest fuels interest or, or, or sorry, in Illinois? <laughs> um, <laughs> no problem. What, what is what it? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually not entirely sure. I mean, from my, uh, from my experience, I was lucky to go to a high school, which already had like a significant chess culture, chess history where we had, um, many like strong players before me that uh that competed um and i think uh the the movie chess state i think it it delves in a little bit to the the history of illinois high school chess yeah and um i know that there is a strong interest for um for for chess across the state i i'm I'm not entirely sure what fuels it and i honestly don't know or i yeah i don't know why the the team's and the players on these teams don't compete more in like U.S. chess events, but um, it's uh, it's maybe something to to look into a bit deeper. Yeah. Well, in any event, I mean, the main thing that that interests me, the main thread that 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 I had that I wanted to know more about was just like what's replicable. You know, that's why I'm sort of asking these questions is because like I, I've talked before on the podcast uh, about how much more fun chess can be as a team event. And in the United States, you know, anyone who's, who's ever played in one of the amateur team events probably Mm -hmm. has experienced this and, you know, international listeners like from watching the Olympiad and stuff like that. And I I don't like the Bundesliga and so on and so on. um, It's just, I mean, it sort of solves the one, I wouldn't call it a problem in chess because the, the individual aspect is part of what, makes it appealing but i feel like it's sort of like the perfect mix when you're still competing on your own but you have like a you know kindred spirits that you're playing next to oh of course and i i I definitely enjoy like team events a lot more than individual events you not only can you like cheer on your teammates but then you can um kind of cope with losses better sometimes if you have a bad result but your team still wins it, it doesn't matter um so it's definitely something great to be a part of, and I'll, I'll definitely miss playing for uh, for the Webster team. Yeah, I was going to ask: Did you feel like Webster with so many sort of strong players? And you know, they say in in like the NBA or whatever, like every player is their own corporation. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Like you know, with Ray Robson or someone like that, but still, mm-hmm. like I mean, they're so invested in their careers and their development is so important. So, did you feel like the team spirit was as strong as it was at like the other places that you played? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think maybe this is one thing that separates Webster from other teams is just kind of the team camaraderie. Is the fact that like we we are friends kind of outside just the chess aspect of uh, of things. And, um, I mean, especially like it felt like maybe the last, mm, semester, two semesters that I attended Webster, like when we got, uh, we actually got a couple of ping pong tables for our chess office and we would just hang out like all the time, like pay, play ping pong with each other. Um, I was good friends with Ray. We would play tennis on, uh, on various occasions whenever we had free time. So, um, kind of the the concept of doing things outside of chess 
I think kind of contributes to the the overall team success. Nice. Um, and what about the studying? Like, did you guys have? I mean, some of the players are so strong. There's like, there's only a handful of people that that necessarily can teach them. So, did you guys ever have like group lectures given to you? Yeah. So we would um, we would meet on a good weekly basis. It would vary throughout the year. Like if there was a strong tournament coming up, then there would be weekly meetings. And then of course, before like a big tournament, like Pan Ams or final four, there would be sometimes like daily kind of boot camp type sessions. Um, I will say like kind of between uh, finals week ending and the start of Pan Ams, we would be at the chess office every day kind of training on, on various aspects of the game so there is a, a good variety of, of things that i think kept everyone studying and, and staying sharp and um there's a good variety of training methods too that we used between um like working in, in groups for opening preparation and then kind of doing um doing of course like tactics training exercises so um, i think it was pretty well-rounded in terms of uh terms of in terms of the training approach. So where would you get the tactics that you guys worked on? Uh, Susan. She's nice. very good at, uh, at, at finding like good and difficult material for, um, for especially strong players to, to work on. And she would never run out of, uh, of, of tough material for us. Nice. And like how long would you guys spend on a problem? Um. Well, some of us would spend much longer than others. Right, of course. Um, and like Ray would usually be the one who would like bolt through all the problems quicker than anyone else. But um, I, don't know, I think usually how it worked, we would maybe get four problems and then maybe like 45 minutes to an hour to work through them. Um, of course, th- these numbers could vary, but um, but it would kind of be competitive because you're, you're kind of racing to see – who can solve more problems in the given amount of time. And um, I'm, I'm sad to say that most times I, I didn't perform as well as uh, the rest of the team, but it's still a, a great learning experience. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no shame in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. So, Eric, I'm going to use you, you as a guinea pig because I personally have really enjoyed the, the last few guests, but we haven't had any sort of uh, – we haven't had as many like hardcore chess players who are, you know, have – been working hard to to improve so could you give Mm. some book recommendations or general improvement advice for for our listeners yeah sure um i I don't know about book recommendations i I can give maybe a few um and maybe you can help me out here like do you know like who who are your listeners like what are their chess capabilities i'm sure there's a wide variance yeah it's it's a good question i mean i get a lot of emails and i would say it it runs the gamut i mean i would say most uh are tournament players but rating wise i mean there's a lot of sort of uh excuse more towards adults although i've gotten a couple emails from high school kids shout out to the high school listeners Mm -hmm. um but I would say rating-wise, it ranges from 1,200. And, you know, there are strong players like you and some grandmasters who listen. So, But, you know, the grandmasters who listen I and people like you, I think we, we're we more interested in the lifestyle. Like, um, of course, yeah. <laughs> um, and then as, as you go down the, the rating spectrum, 
I feel like listeners get are more interested in like they're obsessed with chess and they want to improve and like when they're they just at, want practical advice and when they're at the gym and and like uh-huh. driving their car it's like the one time they can't do anything and this is the next best thing so so for those people what what would you advise um yeah it's a tough question and yeah it might be too in broad in terms of book recommendations um I'm not a huge fan of actually using chess books for study. I, I will say one of my favorite books, and I, I've probably mentioned this before in maybe some articles or some uh, some YouTube videos, but um, this book, Imagination in Chess by Kaprindashvili. And it's one of the few books that I've actually covered, most likely start to finish. And it's essentially just a, a book filled with exercises, but it's grouped by kind of how you figure out the the solution to the problem. And it's a really interesting breakdown because every chapter is kind of a different type of thought process. So there's there's all these different approaches to kind of how you go about solving a problem and, and what to look for over the board. So I, I found that to be very useful. And actually, the, the one binge that I did of solving problems in that book um, – Right, right after I played a couple tournaments, and that was those were some of my best performances. I gained maybe a hundred points um, within two tournaments and got my IM title. Wow! And I have to give some credit to to that book. Okay, that's a strong recommendation, everyone. Imagination in chess, and I will put it on the book webpage. Um, so, yeah. what was you know? Because you've sort of you're at the age where you're sort of uh, bridging the book generation or perhaps maybe post book generation in chess because now with tactics trainers obviously you know up and coming players still have to know their history and still have to learn the books but they're able to sort of optimize their abilities like in ways that the old old men like me couldn't so what how did you study aside from books yeah apart from books i would just highly recommend becoming good at using chess base I mean, the, just the ability to leverage technology to help chess improvement is just so powerful these days between the, the capabilities of like the newer engines, opening databases, and just being able to kind of crunch through all the recent games. And this applies especially in opening preparation mm-hmm. and also like specific preparation for opponents. And I think, like even young players, this is maybe a good um, good recommendation. It is kind of learn how to essentially prepare for someone, um, especially in these longer tournaments where maybe it's a game a day, um, and you know you're pairing the night before. You, you want to know like the best approach to opening preparation, how to kind of not only look up all your opponent's games, but also kind of understand their style, understand what opening is most likely, and then being able to kind of best prepare for uh, for whatever opponent. So, so so let's say you have, say, two and a half hours to prepare for someone mm-hmm. the night before. Like, h- how would you divide your time? Or, I mean, yeah, you well, probably don't think about it. Yeah, you probably don't think about it that concretely. But, I mean, if you're too think back uh about it anyway go ahead of course i mean i I spent like a good portion of my my uh europe trip like during these tournaments this is what i would do at night like once the pairings would go up 
I would like extensively stalk my opponent's games <laughs> online. And um, so, would you use chess base or just like online? You mentioned online, like chess DB or chess games, or yeah. So I'm I'm kind of lazy, and I don't necessarily update my my chess base database like that frequently. So what I'll do, yeah, is use uh, this website chess DB, um, which I'm not sure like how many U.S. players actually get into this, but like in like for these European tournaments, chess D- chess DB has like the most recent games. And is pretty reliable in like providing all their games in, in a single PGN file. Um, so for most of my opponents in Europe, I would of course look up their name, download their PGN file from ChessDB, and then okay, based on what color I am, I would filter their games to whatever color I'm, I'm playing against, and then determine kind of their their whole opening repertoire and and then look for holes in their repertoire and then based on what i find i'll I'll kind of decide what opening to play okay um and i I should note that uh this one more thing that for for myself um and this might be slightly unusual compared to maybe other players of of my level but i don't really have a, a set opening repertoire that i stick with there are there are openings that I'll play maybe more frequently, but I usually base my openings off of what my opponent plays and off of what I find during preparation. Okay, so are you looking for uh, are you looking at the results, or are you looking for like a position where you know they just didn't know the line, or like what piques your interest when you're when you're going through their their openings? Yeah, that's a good question. Usually, what I'm looking for is lines that I or lines that they play where I might have some new idea or I might feel like I'm better prepared. Um, I'll, I'll usually look for lines that they play where, um, or where I I've had, or I've had something in mind that I, I've been wanting to play that I feel like maybe they could walk into. Um, I, I could try and think of, uh, of some examples. I'm sure I, uh, I, I had many of these moments over, over the course of my trip. Um, and actually if, uh, I'm sure like a lot of listeners can follow, uh, maybe some basic opening moves, but I'll give you one example of, of, of one kind of nugget of preparation that I I was lucky enough to unleash. Um, there was one game in Romania. I, I realized my opponent played some, I think it was some kind of Sicilian type dragon against a closed Sicilian. So E4, C5, Knight C3, G6. And the kind of new idea that I had in store for that was to play H4. Hmm. Harry. The very early, yeah. uh, aggressive, just pawn lunge, yeah. wanting to play H5. And the idea behind this move is after H4, the most um, likely move for black is to play H5, preventing white from playing H5. Um, and then the continuation for white is to play D4. And it's actually very similar to like one of these main lines um, with d4 right away, only that h4 and h5 are included. And based on that, there's different ideas that apply to the position. And um, if I'm looking at it right before the game, I'll be a lot better prepared than my opponent who will who, who was surprised by uh, by h4 on move three. Yeah, because so. that's that's pretty pretty out of left field. It's gonna be. If he's looking through your games, I mean, if you have one with it, with that line, like that changes, 
that changes things drastically, I guess. Certainly. And I I put a lot more value when I like choose my openings. I put a lot more value on like surprise moves. Right. Where maybe it's not the best move objectively, but if I'm forcing my opponent to think so early and they're taken off guard and I'm well prepared in the position that will arise, it's probably worth playing over maybe a line that we're both familiar with. Nice. Okay. Well, that is awesome advice for people who are at a level where like they can look up their opponents. But let's try to do some more practical advice for for people like just generally. So I know you've written a little sure. bit about time trouble and working like how how under sorry how um underrated it is and how you mm-hmm. you know as like sort of a, a skill in chess. So what has been your experience with time management and what what advice could you give people about it? Yeah. It- um it's one of these issues which it's sometimes hard to cope with like okay even after i wrote that article i gave all this advice of how to try and avoid time trouble i I still get into it myself and it it takes a lot of discipline um especially like during the game um and there's there's lots of practical that i practical advice that i've heard kind of over the years um one tip that i i think it's so simple but it like when I follow it, I'll, I'll usually almost always avoid time trouble is what's called the 10 minute rule is you should never spend longer than 10 minutes on any given move. And I think the reason for this is if you're spending over 10 minutes, you're probably overthinking things and any any like kind of normal position doesn't require more than 10 minutes of thought. Obviously, there are ex- exceptions, but um if you can avoid taking like these long thinks on any given move or on consecutive moves, then I think you can drastically avoid getting into time trouble. Um, another practical advice is just like be better prepared in the opening yeah. and, and follow some of this preparation advice, like get your opponent out of their comfort zone before they get you out of your comfort zone. And if you can do that, then that can kind of give you some momentum go, going forward for the, the rest of the game. Yeah, that's good advice for sure. I've advice I could I could stand to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. All right. So, what about like middle game, um, end game? Do you have any like standout recommendations for for how to work on particular phases of the game? Yeah, and these are these are like very kind of vast, broad stages of the game. It's hard to maybe pinpoint like like a specific thing to do well i will say like any like serious player even like a weaker player players of any level should do this is save all of your games digitally um primarily to chess base and that way you can you can have like a, a good kind of data set of your your games especially your losses and it might be easier to do this with a coach but you can try and do it like alone too, maybe with an with an engine. Um, try and identify certain tendencies in your games, and ideally try and identify like what is going wrong and why you're losing games. And if you can do that, if it's maybe time related, if it's in the end game, you're not uh, not calculating ideally. If if you're making maybe like careless mistakes, one move blunders, these are all different issues which uh, which need to be addressed. And I think the probably the most efficient way to improve is doing just this: is identifying your weaknesses, and then working to uh, 
to improve them. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of our guests, I mean, obviously, we've had enough guests where the, the chess advice runs the gamut, but that mm-hmm. kind of echoes what uh, what uh, Chess Explained, Christoph Zalecki, recommended. And I, I took his advice to heart, and I, mm-hmm. it did make make a big difference in sort of like like that sort of, like that strain of advice really helped me a lot so i definitely echo that like it really it's so easy to get lost in the weeds of an individual game um and like forget like or beat yourself up about some blunder but there's there's probably more to it than just the actual blunder you know like the time management the opening so on and so forth so yeah that that's of course I'll also say that like mindset and like the psychological approach is just so important in this regard, like being able to like accept your losses, but then have the work ethic to kind of go back and take an analytical approach rather than just kind of being emotional about it. And I think a a lot of players, especially younger players, maybe don't know how to cope with losses and, and don't know like how to recover from a loss and and take it as a learning experience. And I've noticed that like especially with students when they can have a more mature approach then that's when improvement can really take place. Yeah. Yeah, process based and yeah, in a similar vein I you know, I read that you wrote about having goals that are not related to to the outcome of of your games like Exactly. I, I think that's very important as you focus on like how you improve and not just like the, the final rating or title or whatever. Okay, cool. Well, thank you, Eric. I, I mean, I think you've you've given the, less, the listeners a lot of red meat for uh, n- new paths to explore, new approaches to take in terms of uh, dissecting their game and like ways to study and stuff like that. So having done that, obviously, I want to get back to outside of chess improvement. So, um, sure. so what are you, what else are you into? What are your outside of, I know you're a tennis player what else, what are your outside of chess hobbies travel? Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've gone through like different phases of like different, uh, <laughs> different sort of interests. Um, tennis was a big thing in high school. I played four years on my varsity tennis team. Um, of course we talked about earlier, like photography is, um, big interest of mine. Um, I recently bought a, a drone and um, oh, nice. I took that to Europe. I don't know if you saw some uh, some of my clips on Facebook, but um, I managed to, uh, to to get some pretty cool aerial footage of, uh, of some of the, the European scenery. Any, tr- so any trouble been, getting uh, your drone through customs anywhere? Um, not through customs. My, uh, <laughs> my mom was actually really nervous of me taking the drone before I went on the trip. Cause all this stuff in the media, she thought I might be mistaken as like a U.S. spy, uh-huh. but, um, it, it was completely okay. And, um, it was especially nice to fly in Benasque with like the open mountain areas. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, I mean like anything kind of visual and digital I, I've, I've been really into, um, I'm trying to think what else out of my uh, my area of study and out of chess. Um, I've kind of I've been going through this uh, this recent interest of uh, of cryptocurrency. Oh yeah, and, I mean, um, it's funny to me that it's penetrated the chess world because I you know I still have my foot in the poker world a little bit and follow mm-hmm. a lot of poker people on Twitter. So I'm I just haven't had the bandwidth to to get into the crypto the cryptocurrency thing, but something has changed in the last six months where like worlds are colliding. Like I I've got 
like, all right, my Twitter feed is chess Twitter, poker Twitter, finance Twitter, basically, because mm-hmm. those, those are my three biggest interests. And now <laughs> they're great. all now all three. It used to be just poker was talking about cryptocurrency because like the online thing, you know, it's like was an easy way to transact. And then it right. blew up in finance, obviously. And now like even chess players are talking about it. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, go go on. Educate me. I mean, yeah, I, I'm I'm fairly new to the space, and I, I think because it's received so much media attention, especially in recent months, with Bitcoin just like skyrocketing, um, it, I I, do, I really don't know if it's just a fad or if it's um, I mean, I'm I'm hoping it's something that's going to stay around for for long term and, and get bigger. Um, but yeah, I've I've had some friends on the West Coast who've who've made a good amount of money just investing in. Um, not only Bitcoin, but like all these other kind of altcoin currencies, Ethereum and some of these these others. And I think it's um very interesting space. So. I mean, the returns have been insane. So, um. Right. And I remember like some random point uh, during my Europe trip, uh, Nakamura just messaged me out of the blue, just like something like Bitcoin exclamation point like <laughs> yeah. taking off. That that, that's day. a classic Nakamura so. <laughs> message for sure. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the diffusion model. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it, but someone else did before. But basically the, the mm-hmm. idea is that there's like different phases of like um, a, uh, a school of thought taking hold or a trend developing. So there's, uh-huh. there's the innovators, the, the early adopters, the late adopters, um, oh man, and I'm going to forget because it's been a while, but basically there's two more phasers, phases, like it basically acceptance and then the laggards, although the fourth one's not called acceptance. So whenever I look mm-hmm. at a trend like that, uh, and you know, I've got some, some scars on my back in the, the investing world from like, I'm sure <laughs> from, from learning lessons the hard way, I'm always trying to place like where they are within that cycle. And, you know, with with Bitcoin, I think it's we can safely rule out innovators and early adopters. But beyond that, I, I don't know where it is. You know, I don't know if it's the fifth inning or the, the eighth inning. But if it's the fifth inning, there's still a lot of money to be made. So, oh, of course. And I, I think um, I mean, that's the big question. I, I don't know if anyone truly knows. And um, I mean, if, if we did know if it, if it still has a lot of room to grow, then um, there's certainly a lot of more a lot more money to be made. Um, I will tell, uh, I'll, I'll tell kind of a funny story. Um, earlier today I was giving a, a lesson to a young student and like at the beginning of the lesson, all he wanted to talk about was how he's like buying like his own like custom, I don't know, mining hardware. And he just wants to mine Bitcoin. And he was asking me like if, if he should like make this huge investment to mine Bitcoin and get, get a good return. And, I I honestly didn't really know what to say to him, but um, it's it's definitely reached that level of popularity where yeah, even, that's um, funny. Just random people are, are are telling me about it. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, the adage in the in the stock world is like when when the cab driver starts to tell you about the stocks that he owns, it's uh it's time to get out. <laughs> but, that's true. Yeah. But having said that, you know, it'll probably double before uh, bef- before it crashes. Um, cool. Well, Eric, I think. I may be out of questions. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. Just just looking at my list here. Yeah, I think I've got everything covered. I mean, I'm definitely interested to see like what it sounds like you're sort of at um, an inflection point in your career. So I'm definitely curious to see what what happens, what your next move is. 
Definitely. Yeah, I, I'm curious too, and I, I'm also excited to uh, to see what opportunities I can uh, I can pursue. And uh, any like, how hard are you going to be hitting the chest? Like, let's say you take a job outside of chess. What what do you think? How do you think it'll fit into your life? Um, I mean, ideally, I would like to keep chess as some part of my life. I mean, it's been such a big part of my life for for so many years, and even if it's just like teaching on the side. Um, I've been very much inspired by what um, what a lot of other players are doing, like Mezgan Amanov, Kosta Kavutsky, like kind of starting their own um, like online courses yeah. where you can reach a much broader audience, but still kind of put in the same time it, it takes for like a, a single lesson. So I think that's definitely an area. I mean, I've already begun kind of delving into and, and trying to identify of the, the best possibilities and already have like a few website domains bought and, and that, that that might be a, a project to pursue before I actually commit to a full-time job. Excellent. Well, as I always tell my, tell my guests, if we haven't actually done it yet, but if anyone ever wants to pop on and like, you know, as I told Pontus Carlson, like do, do a short little like, Hey, I, I, you know, I talked about this and now I'm doing it, you know, or like Mm -hmm. Ben Feingold with the Atlanta chess center. Um, so yeah, if you ever like get it together and want to announce it to the audience, uh, give me a shout. I'm, I'm sure people would be interested. Sure. Yeah. That'd be really cool. And, um, I, I mean, I wanted to ask you like, where, where do you see this podcast going in the next like year, two years, five years? Yeah. So Um, it seems like you're, getting like a a great audience yeah it's it's growing so that's been gratifying you know since you asked i might as well say uh to the audience that that the shakedown is coming um uh, i'll be asking Mm -hmm. for donations at some point but you know nothing nothing required or anything like that but like you know i spend about three to four hours a week doing this um so basically i just mainly be looking to recoup my costs and and in you know my dream scenario is to make like my hourly rate for private lessons for the time i put in you know, so no grand ambitions, but if I ever achieve that mm-hmm. goal with this podcast, like I have ideas for other chess related podcasts, but I'm definitely at, I'm at my maximum in terms of, uh, you know, uh, non-paying <laughs> side hustles, Sure, <laughs> but, uh, but I love doing it and yeah. Um, you know, so people sometimes ask me if I would like run out of guests, but you know, I mean, my list alone is like 150 people and like, you know, people that have been on are going to come back on and there's 1500 grandmasters alone in the world. So, you know, not all of them speak English, but a lot do. So, um, yeah, hopefully keep this going for a long time. As long as uh, yeah, I'm sure you won't run out of guests anytime soon. Yeah. I'm not too concerned about it, but I, I have been asked about it. So, but yeah, that's Is there one person that like you really want to have on the podcast that you haven't had a chance yet. That's a good question. I mean, it's tough. I mean, when I brainstormed this and I put put off making this for like a year, I mean, Hikaru was high up on the list of like people who I thought would be interesting and that I thought I could probably get at some point. So, and mm-hmm. and Svidler kind of similar. I mean, after this New Yorker profile, obviously like everyone else, I'm really interested in Aronian. Um uh Maurice Ashley who I know a little bit, like, you know, sooner or later, I have to get him on. Um Oh, a uh, big one, of course, dream guest speaking like big picture would be Judith Polgar. 
Um, mm-hmm. What about you? Uh, like, who do you like? Who would be your top couple dream oh, guests? If I wanted to see on this podcast, yeah, um, yeah. I was going to say Maurice. I, I I think he has a lot of interesting stories to to tell, and he's really well spoken. Um, maybe another person he might be hard to get, but he's always someone who I've, uh, I've looked up to is Josh Waitskin. Yeah. Um, you probably, you mentioned the Tim Ferriss podcast. You probably heard him on there. Right. So it's like a joke oh, that he doesn't sure. do media. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, right. maybe I, maybe I can get it, but it seems, um, seems unlikely based on, uh, on their interactions. Well, if you keep growing, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would be great. I mean, I'm a big fan of his book and, and we're the mm-hmm. same age. So, you know, he was always. I was always like, uh, you know, 25th on the top 50 list, and he was always first <laughs> when, uh-huh, I, when I, I was growing up. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, th- those would definitely be good. All right, so Eric, uh, people, as you know, I'm going to ask you if people want to reach you, um, uh, mm-hmm. how should they do so? Um, yeah, there's a lot of ways to reach me. Um, I have a few different websites. I have Twitter, so... My Twitter feed is I am underscore Rosen. Um, my chess website is I am Rosen.com. I am R-O-S-E-N. Um, I have a personal website, Eric-Rosen.com. Um, and both of those sites have contact forms. Um, I'm sure people can also pretty easily find me on Facebook too. So whatever works best for the listeners, I'm, um, I'm, I'm good with any option. Excellent. Cool. Well, well, thanks for coming on, Eric. It was a lot of fun. Um, And good luck with uh, figuring out what your next step is. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Podcast Network.